This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to Out to Lunch. So nice of you to join me as I take a famous person for a slap-up meal and we record the sparkling conversation. Today, I am joined by a stand-up comedian whose onstage character doesn't actually have a name, but he's still filled arenas, presented his own TV shows and even run for Parliament. We're not playing his alter ego. My guest has a passion for military history. and He's also a hugely respected drummer who's played with Iron Maiden and Queen and even runs a leading company that makes them. Time, ladies and gentlemen, please, for the pub landlord, Al Murray. Don't want to play Hamlet or any of that comedian stuff. Don't think it's going to happen, mate. But no, it's, no, no, it's far <laughs> too late for that. Well, they didn't Ian McKellen play him recently. I mean, maybe, maybe there's a... Yeah, but he had quite a good form. <laughs> I'm standing by the Grand Union Canal, not far from Paddington Station, by a barge, which is also a restaurant. It's the London Shell Company's Grand Duchess, uh, which is a floating restaurant. Um, one of theirs actually goes up and down the, the canal and you can have a sort of floating dinner. This one stays put. I reviewed it a few years ago. Lovely, lovely fish dishes. Al Murray just loves his food. I mean, he's a big restaurant goer um, and I think he's gonna like this. We have the whole place to ourselves with the waters floating past us. It's gonna be a delight. Hello, Jay. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks. Very good to see you. Likewise, yes. Have a seat. Oh, this is very, this is very convivial. Look at that. Have a place to yourself. I want to tell you, this bowl of chipsticks looked like this the moment it arrived, but actually it was heaped. <laughs> and I think, You've been on. at them. You've been at them, have you? Well, look at them. Yeah, look at that. That's look at them. Good, they have, you know, they have to be mm. done. Mm. Still watching. Uh, this is Eliza who will be serving us. Nice to meet you. I have to thank you on the record. Yep. Because 16 years ago, I have mentioned this to you before, yeah. because we do know each other slightly. Mm, mm. 16 years ago, you gifted me the perfect opener for every after-dinner, after-lunch speech I've ever done. I don't know if you remember this. No. All right. Remind me. We were both guests at Gordon Ramsay's 40th birthday oh. party. Oh, dear God. <laughs> do you remember it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my memory is exactly as you would expect the birthday party of a superstar chef to be. Yep. Hugely decadent. Yep. It was in the old war rooms, I think. Cabinet office on Whitehall somewhere. It was in Whitehall. Yes, yeah. it was, wasn't it? Yeah. And there was human sculptures draped in food. There was yep. a performance by the cast of Chicago stage. Yeah. And? Yes, I did a turn. Yeah. 
Because you've been on Hell's Kitchen, haven't you? That's right. I did. I did the first series of Hell's Kitchen with Gordon, um, which I enjoyed enormously. I had a whale of a time doing that, even though it was a not my usual environment. In any, I'm not interested in anyone really knowing about me very much. I, I want to be a comedian. I want my comedy to do the sort of lifting. But I, I really enjoyed it. So I really enjoyed being around the chefs, and I really enjoyed learning and. Didn't you? You, you progressed quite far in the competition. Yeah, I got to the last Friday. Yeah. Right. Anyway, so you, you're in Gordon doing yeah. it a bit as yeah. the, as the pub landlord, and you're yeah. going around the audience saying, who, "Who are you? Who are you?" And you point at me and you say, "You mate, what are you doing?" And I said, "I'm a restaurant critic," and you replied, "Fat bloke, what types?" <laughs> <laughs> well, you are there, Al, <laughs> laughing at one of your own jokes. Yes. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> But, you know, I can see that in the moment that would have worked, which is uh, how it always goes. And now I tell this story at the beginning of every speech I ever do. Really? And he described me as fat bloke world types. And then I go, which was quite shocking because I think of myself as a journalist. (laughs) And then I can tell my story. (laughs) So I think you know, you know, that a good opener is comedy gold. It's everything. It's everything. Yeah, absolutely. The show I'm doing at the moment, I've got four, four things I come on and I do without fail. Not necessarily the same order, but they, out they come and we're up, we're set, we're going, and then we can go. Isn't the first job of a comedian, in fact, any performer, to put the audience at their ease to know that everything's going to be OK? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, and, and the thing is, is um, and I'm really fortunate because people know what to expect from me, but that means you have to come on and give them what they expect. People talk about comedy, um, secret of comedy being surprised, and I always think that's not, that's not actually the case. I think it's about, it's about trust. Um, you can, you, you can, as a comic, you can surprise people within the way they trust you. You know, you're not just a jack-in-the-box. But if you ponied up 20, 25, I don't know what your ticket price is these days, <laughs> £75 pounds oh, no, to, no. to see you on stage. They want the thing that they paid their money for. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm quite comfortable with doing the jokes. Not doing old jokes they want to hear, but giving them the thing, giving them the thing in sort of red, red-blooded form. Well, uh with a segue worthy of 1980s Radio 1, I'm very keen on giving you what you want. So should we have a look at the menu? Yes, please, yeah. Um, so it's a, well, I can say essentially it's fish-based. Um, well, you know what? My wife and I have tried to get in here. Have you? Yep, and, and have failed. Because if I'm around, we try and eat properly. And we've, we've had our sights set on here and, and not got here. So this is very exciting. Well, now you're here. Yeah. In fact... A little bit like, is it the De Niro figure in Once Upon a Time in America? I booked the whole place for you. No, it's beautiful. Although that ends really darkly, so let's not go there. (laughs) The fish platter, is that a sharing thing? Yeah, sharing starter. So um, between the two of you, we've got the smoked salmon, pepper trout, crevettes. Also have cold, but lovely to pick on and share. So that is an option, or we can do a couple of starters and a couple of mains. What do you want to do? I completely, you had me at, is that to share? (laughs) Fish platters to share, are, right. you know, that's what life's all about. So let's, ha- let's have a fish platter, and then what do you want to... You, you get first dibs on the mains. Cause OK. Um, could I have the trout, please? You want to go for the trout? Yep. Wonderful. And I'll have the place, please. You're going to go for the place? And it would obviously be illegal not to have the chips, wouldn't it? Yeah, we've got to have the chips. Got to get it done. Anything to drink for you, gents? Glass of wine? I could have a glass of wine. Glass of white of some kind? A, a white wine, yeah, a yeah, glass of white wine, thank you. A lovely um, white burgundy on the moment. We'll get you a, I think a couple of glasses of that. Yeah, why not? That'd be Brilliant. perfect. Thank, thank you. you. The origins of the pub landlord. 
remind us how that character came well, to that, be. The character is the character is an accident. He was meant to get me through that evening. I was doing stuff with Harry Hill, who I'd met on Weekending, which some people may remember as the Radio 4 topical satire show. Uh, I met Harry at that. We became friends. And we were doing a show in Edinburgh where we, we had a little band, me and a fellow called Matt Bradstock, who sadly is no longer with us, who played the keyboards. I played the drums, Harry sang. And we got all the way to Edinburgh with me saying, I'm going to come up with a thing to link it all together, to compare it. Harry, you do your stand-up. They did stuff together and we'd finish with the band. And I said, I'll come up with a linking thing. And I, the thing I came up with didn't work. And so when we got to the opening night in Edinburgh, we were in the cabaret bar at the Pleasance, uh, um, that people may know if they go to the Fringe. And I said, well, why don't... Just before we were about to... You know, we've done our sound check yeah. we're back in the dressing room. I said, well, why don't we say that the compare didn't show up and the barman has offered to fill in? And Harry was sort of like, yeah, whatever, another one of your bright ideas. And that's what it, and I, so I scribbled some things down and I went on and did the things I'd written what down. What were you wearing? To play the pub band drummer, I had a sort of double-breasted suit and a roll neck. A sort of, you know, r- run down, thank you very thank much. You. Mm, cheers. A run down London pub was the idea I was going for. Mainly because doing the, Lond- the comedy circuit, the cabaret circuit, you went to a lot of run down London pubs as a comic. So it felt... Felt like it fit. Anyway, so I went on and I did the stuff and it worked. I introduced Harry. Harry went on. During his 40 minutes, I wrote, you know, five more things in the sort of desperate deadline clinch. And I'm a deadline person. And those worked. And then, the, you know, I... And 65 years well, on. It's a bit like that. <laughs> it's, I mean, Dame Edna, Dame Edna, after all, yeah, um, was invented as a bit for the Commonwealth Games in 1956 by Barry Humphreys. So... And I don't imagine he thought that, again, you know, 900 years later, he'd still be doing it. So I, so I kind of think it's in that spirit. But he never had a, the pub landlord ever name. He never had I, a pub. I, I, do you know, I, I, I started trying to look this up. Yeah. The backstory for the pub landlord, what is his name beyond Gov? Well, the idea sort of became quite quickly that it's raining and you go in a pub to get out the rain and, the, and you don't know the name of the pub. It's not where you would ever drink. And you've gone in and the barman says, who are you, what are you doing in here, what do you do? Starts at you and you don't get time to know him or him tell you about himself. A backstory has sort of evolved over the years because I've had to write one for things where, you, where they, they want one. But I never said. Did you find that quite annoying when they asked you for a backstory? Yeah, well, yes and no. But I also think, you know, he's a drunk, so his backstory is entirely unreliable. So (laughs) So it could change. So it does change. You know, the names of his dogs change. What have they been over the years? It was Gary for quite a while. There's a dog called Gary. And then there's a dog called Ramrod. I'm a fan of the idea of the unreliable witness. I think comedians ought to be unreliable witnesses anyway. I've watched a load of stuff Hmm. prior to us meeting over lunch. God Um, help you. The one that really struck me was the. uh, how, How. Finance works. Yes. Which is pure pub landlord, mm. but also quite instructive. <laughs> well, well that's... it's like you are actually explaining what goes <clears throat> on in the city. Yes, I've ended up doing some routines like that. There was one about the European bank I used to do as well, which really upset people in the end, because what I'd do is I'm going to explain how the European bank works to you, but I'm going to need change. So I, so I basically took change off the whole of the front row, put it in my pocket, and I said, and that's where that explanation ends. <laughs> And there was one night where a guy, he gave me a £50 note, right? 
You couldn't now give it back, could you? No, no, so I didn't, right? And and then we get all these, you know, basically green ink letters to the theatre and then to my management and all this sort of thing. He stole 50 quid off me. And I I did used to say, give me a small change, you know, give me your loose, not not your folding, you know, whatever you do. Well, I remember there was a great night. It was at Warwick Arts Centre where me and my tour manager, and he got his brother in to help where we cashed up this sort of giant bag of money, you know, like, and we gave it to, you know, obviously gave it to charity, but it was, um... You'd like to put that on the record. And it's, <laughs> and it's, it's on the record now. But yes, that's, what, that's exactly what we did. But yes, I mean, I always think those routines where maybe you're explaining a thing, but also you're being in character. They're, they're the ones that are fun to do. Wonderful. Look at that. There we go. Some more fish batter here for you. Cravats, smoked salmon, pepper trout, some quads rope. I'll do it that way around. So that we're not as messy. Brilliant. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. The key one because it was the longest piece Ooh. of material, was the 2015 election. Yes. Where you ran in yes. uh, Thanet South. Yes. For the uh, yeah. Free United Kingdom party. party. Yes, FUKP. Yes. FUKP. It was the great seriousness with which you took the comedy yeah. of standing as a ridiculous yeah. character. Some people criticised you for undermining politics. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Whereas it seemed to me that you were doing the exact opposite, weren't you? Part of it was a friend in a pub said, are you going to run in the general election next year? Well, um, uh, uh, that was just off the top of the head. Well, thought. no, because well, no, the, the show I was touring at the time was, was, was the l- landlord saying, right, I can, I can do politics. We were coming to the end of that of coalition government and com- co- comedians were becoming much more political. Did you feel you were being left behind and had to get into that? No. No. Quite the opposite, actually. I felt... I was quite worried that people were going there, because I think, as a comic, in the end, you mustn't pick a side. You've got to to be able to um, land your blows on left or right. And middle, and top and bottom. Just as long as it's funny. As long as it's funny. It looked like a trap at the time. And then Russell Brand pops up, having, I think, fallen completely into the trap, and is suddenly an expert on politics and talking about politics, and said that you shouldn't vote because it doesn't change any, anything. Which, of course, you know, in the preceding seven years since then, he's been proved so spectacularly technicolour wrong. So I thought, well, I haven't got Russell's platform, but what I can do is I can, I can, get, I can get involved. You know, there's no better way than telling people to vote than, than asking, them, asking them to vote for you to then think to themselves, well, I'm not going to vote for him because it's ridiculous, which was the sort of, which was the plan in Thanet. We, we were not, we didn't want anyone to vote for me at all, but we wanted them to vote. You must have been distressed by the 318 people who did vote for well, you. Then. I have since met people in Margate who claim to have voted for me. So I just sweeted them, but also, you, you know, there was no need for that, <laughs> old boy. I mean, this trout is amazing. It is very good, isn't it? I mean, seven years on from that, mm. has it changed the, the way that you view political discourse in this country? Um, well, I came out, yes, I came out with sort of two, two conclusions. One is who'd be a politician. Everyone is d- basically desperate for you to fail. Your allies are desperate for you to fail so they can climb over your corpse and all that. So who'd do it? Which means you've got to ask who's doing it. Right. You know, so much of our discourse has been has been really shattered and disrupted by the by 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 the by the last twenty years, really. Uh, coming out of the you know the Iraq War, where you know people's faith in a government telling them the truth about something really important 
sort of fatally undermined. And I think, you know, that, and, and I know there, there were plenty of reasons why that happened, but I think that's some of the consequence. And then, you know, you're trying to use... David Cameron's conviction that using referenda to solve problems was a good one was... Have you talked to your first cousin about this? <laughs> oh, God. We're going to have to explain what that means. Yeah, go we? on, go on, go on. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I had an experience once with somebody who wanted to, um, like, role-play, uh -huh. like, um... Like with relative stuff. No. Yes. No. That's a and hard I couldn't. Pass. And I said, I said, um, they no. wanted. They first said, da like dad, daddy, oh, and, and, and I said, um, well, that's not so bad. But um, so I suggested maybe like I said maybe the most I could do is uncle. <laughs> Okay, so that was just a snippet of an episode with actor and podcaster Justin Long. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and I'm telling you, you need to listen to the full episode on my podcast, Dinner's on Me. Over a meal at Pine and Crane in downtown LA, we get into his love story with Kate Bosworth, his career, and so much more. To listen, just search Dinner's on Me wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, so, so <laughs> what was really wonderful? What was really wonderful about that? I mean, and it's sort of a precursor of where we are now, really. It's during the 2015 campaign. Conspiracy theories started to surface as to why I might have done it, and there are several. Because if you go on my Wikipedia, you a dangerous place. A dangerous place, of course. You'll get this impression that um, that I'm a sort of twirling cane toff. All this sort of stuff. My grandfather was an was the ambassador to Greece. He was a uh, governor of the BBC. Your great great grandfather my was three great grandfathers. William Thackeray. That's on my mother's side, but that doesn't mean he was posh. That means he was a he would. They were an East India Company family. He had money, and he was a novelist. But you, you've been eminently downwardly mobile as a family for decades. Well, this you? is how I this is how I feel about it. And every now and again, I get a sort of like kind of Corbynite class warrior going, you know, you, you, I think, aren't I going in the right direction? Is this what you want? <laughs> my, my grandmother, I mean, my, my grandmother, my father's mother was, a, was, an, was from an Austrian, her father was a count, I think, but then they abolished counts when the First World War ended because, because they were told they had to, you know, get rid of the Austro-Hungarian. So she wasn't a countess. So she, you know, so we were, go we're going in the, we're headed in the right direction. So there was all these conspiracy theories. And, and I, I remember having a, Amazingly fruit. the last piece of trout. I know you want to. It's so delicious. Yeah. Go Amazingly on. fruitless argument with someone on Twitter who went, was going, your grandfather, he fixed it for you to do well in comedy. And I'm thinking, right, well, he died when I was 14, long before I knew what I wanted to do. And also, how? Is there, some, is there someone at the foreign office who was ringing, ringing round pubs in the mid-90s to make sure I got work? Had, the, had jongleurs on uh, exactly jongleurs speed on, speed, on speed dial because we had speed, in his filofax on speed dial. Like, the, the, oh, the, the references! Exactly, these are the times we're talking speed about. Speed dial. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. They were day, day, carbon dating ourselves quite successfully there. But and and the guy's going, yeah, that's how it works for you people. And I'm thinking, 
Fuck, what were you on about? The other conspiracy that then surfaced was, and it's because of Thackeray, um, who was my great 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 grandfather, wrote Vanity Fair, wrote Vanity Fair, Penn Dennis, Barry Lydon, uh, wrote for Punch. I've got his Mr. Punch inkwell that they gave him when he left. Oh, really? And the, there's a genealogy website, or there was, and what they do kind of every 18 months is they do a press release where they say, look, you know, Princess Diana is related to Barack Obama, and you can find this stuff out too. This is the how far down the barrel they'd got, is, the, is they'd found that a relative of four generations ago, relative of David Cameron's, had married a four generations ago relative of mine, Neither is the product of that union, but that, that, if you leave that to Didn't simmer, you say 800,000 people could also have had that Well, we, we're, we're all, you know, we're all like Danny Dyer. We're all related, related to Edward to II or God, whoever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, Charlemagne, isn't it? But you leave that to simmer on an aggrieved message board and it turns into him and me being first cousins. And that's why I did it. Because either the EU put me up to it via the BBC... Um, which was, that was a very strong theory. And given my relationship with the BBC, which is very on and off, and they've never, they've never held me to their bosom. I've never, I've never been a, I'm not, you know, it's like the mafia, I'm not a captain in the, you know, I've occasionally done, done a couple of murders for them. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so it turned into, he's my first cousin, I've done it for him to help the Tories out in the constituency, which is sort of com- completely mental. Ever met Dave? I met him twice, yeah. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Did and you we discuss the family? No, we didn't. We didn't say, you know, how the kids, you know, um, mission accomplished, <laughs> none of that. I met him at two events, yeah. At the time, I was kind of fascinated and entertained by the way that people were seeing this. But now, I realise this is how people see the world. And I find that quite worrying. It is. It is bizarre. We have food arriving. Oh, look at that. We've got chips. Here we have our chalk streamed trout with lentils, oyster mushrooms, salsa verde. Wow. And your place with Perry, Pams and uh, Thank you. Lovely. Thank you so much. Some mayonnaise. Those, those need mayonnaise. Yeah, wonderful. They are Thank sexy you. looking chips. You see. Mm. We are Facebook friends. Mm. You might, if you're listening to this, have a, a vision of what you think Al Murray's Facebook page is going to look, look like. What it is, is an awful lot of drums. Yes. If anybody didn't know what you did for a living, they would assume that you were full-time a professional drummer, which up to a point you almost are. They might think that, yeah. Yeah, I kind of... uh, I wouldn't... Yes, almost, 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 yeah. I'm not going to go back into the comedy, but when you initially went at at Oxford down to a rehearsal room to drum, that was where you met Lee and Herring, Stuart Lee and Richard Herring. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Sat at the piano, were... Stuart Lee and Richard Herring, who had just been in Edinburgh and had just done a review with their... They had a review group called the Seven Raymonds and there were five of them, which was... That was the joke, right? It's quite a good game. Uh, it's not bad. It's good, good, good enough. You could clearly young, young prospects there worth pursuing. And, and they were like, oh, we're... I said, what are you doing? You know, and they were, we're putting a sketch show together. You know, Stuart, Stuart put a sketch show together. And Richard like, chipper. And I said, what is there... What's the comedy scene here? And they told me... And that, that then meant I went the Sunday after to the club where you could do new stuff. You know, you, uh, let's be absolutely clear. You, you played, however that has come about, with some very significant people. You played with Iron Maiden, haven't you? Yeah. You played Queen. With, with Queen. Yeah. I mean, how, how did those gigs with happen? Phil Collins. Um, you well, duetted with Phil Collins. How yeah. did you duet with Phil Collins? There was a drumming magazine, and I became friends with the people on that. Sometimes I'd write him 800 words in a hurry about... 
which drummers to listen to, that sort of thing. And it's 20 years ago now, I was asked to front a clinic tour, as it's called, with a guy called Steve White, who was, who was Paul Weller's drummer for a really long time, and he's a, and he's a real, he's a maestro. Um, he's, he's Stradivarius, you know. And Chad Smith from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and they're great friends. And Chad came over and they did a drumming tour. We went all around the country, they played. And you were emceeing it? And I was emceeing it, because they didn't want to talk. So I'd come on and go, hello everybody, I'd be relaxed with it. And I was paid in drums at the end of this. Were you very thing. happy? I was extremely happy. Although it was also that thing of, um, Stuart Copeland used to talk about when- Drummer with the police. Yeah, the drummer with the police. You spend a chunk of your time wishing for stuff and then they start giving it to you and the kind of shine goes off it. But anyway, I got given a drum set and gained a relationship with all these players and with this um, British drum company called Premier and we became part of my sort of circuit and I've made lots of great friends and I know all sorts of people who played on amazing records and, and also who are just like, they're out there all the time playing and... They take you very seriously though. They seem to, but, but that's, that's really because, because of the drum company that, that yeah, I, found, you, you, I founded. Yeah, the British drum company yeah. is a, a proper drum manufacturing company, making very pretty drums. Handmade in England. But the Royal Marines are playing our drums. Most of the drums at the Queen's funeral were our drums, even though, you know, they, they were all covered in black. And so you could, you, could, you could hear the, you could hear the uh, marketing people thinking, this is a triumph, but bugger. Because <laughs> the last thing you could do, if, you could, if it organically happened that everybody noticed, that'd be fine, but you can't go. No, you, you cannot blow that particular trumpet. No, so, so we've, so Nico and I made and plays our drums. Ian and Kasabian plays our drums. Bastille, Blossoms, Pete Cater, who's a big band drummer, plays our jazz, jazz drums. Did you, did you ever <laughs> see the uh, episode of the Rolling Stones doc series on Charlie Watts? No. Because it turned out that what Charlie Watts, who we all know was the accidental Ooh. drummer in a rock again, band because yeah, yeah. he was a jazz drummer. Yeah. He spent his money collecting every drum kit that ever came up for sale from any great name. Yeah. And it's held in a, some repository. Are you aware of this? There's a repository in some secret location. Yeah. You'll have one of Elvin Jones's, one of Ringo's, one of Bonzo's. I mean, he'll have something, a Baby Dodds drum kit. He'll have, he'll have everything. I love the lot. Do you envy this collection? No, because my wife, my wife and I uh, love each other, and I, I don't want to put a spanner in that particular works. I, I think of you as having three aspects to your life: mm. so, comedy, pub landlord, yep. drums, and then clearly an extreme, concentrated <laughs> obsession with the Second World War. Yes, um, yes. At which point I say you have a new book out. Well, why don't you describe it? It's Command, How the Allies Learned to Win the Second World War is the, is the title and subtitle. And the idea is, I didn't want to write any, about any battles much, because that's difficult and it's been done. And I didn't want to do a, a maps, chaps on maps book with arrows and things. And I didn't really want too many statistics in it, although there are some. But it's 10 people, starting with generals and then working sort of the way down the tree, 10 people involved in the Allied armies and how they tackled the issue of how to win. Because, of course, the thing is, is that the first three and a half years of the Second World War... It, it's, it was mostly losing. It's losing and losing complete routes and, and chaos and uh, ignominy and proper defeat. Uh, and they flip it, you know, which is an extraordinary thing. We'll come back to that. I'm, I'm intrigued as to where this fascination comes from. You, you, called, you called it, you've referred to it at one point as culturally magnetic, the yes. war. Yes, yeah. 
the dri main driver is my father, who was a soldier in the, he did his national service and then stayed in the TA for a long time. And he was a paratrooper and an engineer and he was really into it. Most of his officers had fought in the Second World War. So he was sort of, he was interested in it from that point of view because he knew these people, he knew their stories, knew their experiences. And then his father had been a, was a diplomat post-war. I mean, we touched on him earlier. He was a diplomat post-war, but during the war was SOE Bletchley Park adjacent. Right. There's a thing called the Political Warfare Establishment. Uh, Special Operations Executive, SOE. Right, yeah. He's a, a spook. He was a spook. And definitely was. Right. Various moments where he crops up as part of Harold Macmillan's political mission. So he's part of his sort of advisory team. So he, he shows up in Italy, he shows up in Greece. Um, when, the, when, when Churchill went to Greece and tried to install Damaskinos as a regent, my grandfather was, was there, there's no doubt about that. He told his stories of driving the armoured car through Athens with bullets pinging off the armoured car, all that sort of stuff. So there's that. And then, and then the other side of it is my mother's father was killed in the fighting outside Dunkirk in a place called Harzebrook. She never knew her father. And then my grandmother, her mother's brother, was killed in Burma. So the absolute in 1944, so the elephant in the room was... was the war. The war the, and the loss and the, and the cost. Jeremy Paxman, and I think Robert Harris as well, yeah. who both said this thing, they felt they were lesser because yeah. they, they had not participated in the Second World War. Do you relate to that? No, I think, it's, I think that's inestimably silly. Good. I've, <laughs> I've always worried about it. It's always, I've looked at it and gone, what, you don't, you, you feel like you should have been in a war and if you weren't in a war, you're, you're not a real... The reason in the end it's bananas, I think, is because... Character has nothing to do with it. Everything I've read about the Second World War is, is random fate, chance, chaos, who's going to die and who's going to live, but bear no relation to anything that you do or you might do or you might want to do or achieve. It's just the, the, sheer, ra the sheer difference between life and death is... is there isn't any at a point when the, when the bullets start flying, the no. shells start landing. So the idea that somehow I'd love to have endured that test, well, I may not have got through it. So uh, I just think it's, 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 it's a crazy thing to think. And also sort of kind of a luxurious... Isn't it? It's a luxurious, it's a luxury opinion, you know, because we have the luxury of not having to deal with that. Thank God. Thank God we live in that luxury. You have a podcast. Yes. So remind me the name of your podcast. We have ways of making you talk. <laughs> and have you broken 300? Over 500 now, I think. Because even now, we're... we're finding new things to talk about, new ways to look at it. Thank you you, you so described much. it as the endlessly unpeeled onion, haven't yeah, you? They, yeah, yeah. If you, if you start to look at the Second World War in China, even begin to scratch the surface of that, you realise there's an entire thing we know nothing about and the scale of the devastation, the scale of it all. And then, of course, Chinese attitudes to... Western and particularly American involvement in the war, you can see why maybe the Chinese Communist Party doesn't trust the West. You did right there. It's no, there should be no mystery about it at all about how they feel about the West. The, the way people view it in this country is it's, they know it's called the Second World War, but they only know what happened here. Yeah, happened might, might have a little bit of idea of a bit of Indochina, Burma, or even what's Japan. Going, actually what's going on in Europe. You know, like it's a, it is. But it is a glo literally, it is literally a global event, yet we, we tend to think about the Blitz. The book that you've written is, mm. has been um, very well received. Mm. I'm wondering, when you wade into a field like that, 
which has not, let's say, is not undiscovered. Yeah. There are quite a lot of books about military history yeah. and some very serious people, not saying you're not a serious person, <laughs> but people with letters after their mm. name and tenure at universities and stuff like yeah. that. Did you hesitate or did you think, no, there's a way I can do this, which is Well, the thing, right. is, the thing is, Jay, I am really great at book pitch meetings, right? If I had to pitch you a book right now, boy, you'd, you'd, you'd come away thinking... I've let's got to sort, publish that book. Let's sort the advance out right now. This is red hot. And then I'd go home and go, oh, Christ, what have I done? This is a mountain of work. I can't do this. That's sort of what happened. And once I was into writing it, part of the main issue is to discover a prose style, because I've written five, six comedy books now. And those I can do. And also you have a different relationship with your editor on a funny book. The editor will go, well, I don't think that bit's funny. And I'll say, well, I do, so it's staying in. You start with a reference to Spike Milligan, mm. who may not have planned to do so, but ended up writing one of the earliest and best social histories of the war. Yeah, yeah. His books are fantastic. They are very, very funny in places, but they are also very, very moving and mm. tell a, an extraordinary story of the yeah. war. There's yeah. five volumes? It's five or six volumes, yeah. Because there's, there's piecework when he comes back to London and... Starts to turn into a comedian. It starts with Hitler, my part in his downfall, yeah, which is that's right. absolutely brilliant. I read, I think I read five of them in three days as a kid. Just adored them. And you start with him right at the beginning, and it's almost like you've decided to find a door through which people can accept a comedian oh, writing a book. It's entirely deliberate. It, 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 you know, and I, I think I, I think there's a quote, and I say, well, if you want the truth, go to a comedian. Start the book because I sort of thought, well, you know. We are, we, are, we are allowed a view on this. But I thought Spike would be the right place to start, to sort of say, you know, I, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I am a comedian, but here's a comedian who uh, offers us real value on the subject. Because those, mem those memoirs are amazing about what it's like being a soldier, which, after all, is the sort of... The extraordinary thing about the Second World War is, is blokes who wanted to play the trumpet in Penge suddenly had to become artillerymen. And still play the trumpet. Uh, still play the trumpet. Al, <laughs> El Alamein. Exactly. Uh, is there a part of you that, having had a career in comedy, mm. which is about making people laugh, and often through the surreal and ridiculous, yeah. wanted to prove your inherent seriousness? Absolutely not, no. I don't, don't want to play Hamlet or any of that comedian stuff. Don't think it's going to happen, Mac. But no, it's, no, no, it's far too late for that. Well, they didn't Ian McKellen playing recently. I mean, maybe, maybe there's a... Yeah, but he had quite a good form. <laughs> Harsh but fair. Um, I mean, there's no great desire to be taken seriously. On the other hand, we should be allowed to do more than one thing. Yeah. I don't see why I shouldn't write a history book. If I've done, you know, done the research and thought properly about it. I don't see why I shouldn't. But it's not born of a desire to get anyone to take me seriously, because it's far too late for that in, in, in lots of ways. And anyway, with, with comedy, the, 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 the secret, I always think the sort of key to it is to take it seriously, but not yourself. I mean, the really hard thing with a book, you have to finish it. Yes, you have to let it go. Yeah. It's not like a stand-up show where you never, you never quite finish it. It You're keeps all, changing. It, it keeps changing. The show you might see at the beginning of a two-year tour is yeah, very different. Can very different, yeah. And 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 you and and you're also, you know, if this bit doesn't work tonight, I'll move. I'll change it around for tomorrow. Whereas, the book you have to go. Yes, 
That is the finished version, and I stand, I stand by that. And that, I find that's the bit I find the bit I find hardest of all. I found really, really found really like, sort of almost repulsive. <laughs> is there any meeting point for the pub landlord and <laughs> Al Murray, the military historian? Because Gav would surely have an opinion. Well, he thinks. I mean, the, the, the pub landlord does believe that we won the Second World War on our own, no help from no one else. One foot on the floor, one hand behind our back, like a trick shot. He, he really does believe that. Um, so you know, I have a more, I have a more nuanced view, shall we say? Yeah, but but yeah, I mean, but the, but but they're sort of the, 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 that in the character and what I'm interested in. They're, they're they're related because what he's doing is using history to tell a story that suits him, and I'm interested in finding out what really is the story because the story of the Second World War, the sort of received view, who who wouldn't rather be. The plucky. I'd rather be the plucky underdog. I'd rather that we were the few, you know, the, than an imperial war machine that takes two years to wake up and once it's sort of fully engaged, crushes all before it. Which is the, which is. Whereas Gav. Yeah. Exactly. Probably quite keen on the imperial view. Well, well no, the, no, well, no. The, well, the pub landlord can't make up his mind, so, so he likes. So he likes the idea that we're sort of almighty, but he also likes the idea it was the plucky, the plucky, the plucky. You know, the Cockneys win well, the Second World War, uh, sort of thing. You know, there is no reason for a, a comedy creation to be in any way consistent on nope. this. No, no, and, and you know, if there's a joke in it, I'll take it. Is the is the way it works with the pub landlord? Well, listen, Al, thank you for taking the time. There oh. is dessert if we want it, but for now, I'm going to say, I know there's creme caramel on there. Um, Al Murray, thank you very much for letting me take you out to lunch. Oh no, it's been it's been such a pleasure, Jay. Um, Any time. <laughs> Anytime. Any vacancy. (laughs) Especially, I've always wanted to eat here, so this has been a real treat. Thank you. What a splendid way to spend a rainy weekday on a boat eating top seafood. Thank you so much to Al Murray and to the wonderful people at the London Shell Company. We dined on the Grand Duchess, which is the static boat in Paddington Basin in London. Al's new book is called Command, How the Allies Learned to Win the Second World War and is out now. And if you love this show, do please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share this with friends, Romans, countrymen, and maybe comment, give us five stars, because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The recording engineer was Gulliver Tickle and the mix engineer, Josh Gibbs. Assistant producers are Anya Das and Bethany Hawkins. Selena Reem is the producer and the executive producer is Ollie Wilson. Next time, it's actor and writer Mira Sayal. You've been asked about things you'd like still to do. Cleopatra. <laughs> you'd make a bloody good Cleopatra. I think so. Get off me barge. Get off me barge. Whose asp is this? America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.